Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talkin' Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. You're listening to episode 56 of the Feed the Ball podcast. My name is Derek Duncan, and today my guest is Paul Cowley. I have wondered aloud, and to myself, why the Love Golf Design Team, the firm of Davis Love III and his brother Mark Love, doesn't get more recognition or, well, love. The answer assuredly is that they haven't produced that much work, less than 20 original designs and a handful of renovations since founding the company in the early 1990s, almost all of it in the southeastern United States. The company also went largely dark following the international financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 opting to pull back from the game rather than chase projects all over the world. It also doesn't help that the company doesn't currently have a functioning website. I wonder, too, if at least to the casual observer, Davis Love gets lumped in with other tour pro designers, where it is assumed that his name is essentially a marketing tool, and his actual involvement of the design and construction of any given course is largely ceremonial. That couldn't be farther from the truth. The small company always only had one or two projects going on at the same time to allow Davis full input and involvement. And the products speak for themselves. Love Design courses are unique, handcrafted, boldly conceived, creative bordering on the audacious, and they usually take deep, often literal inspiration from old masters like Seth Rayner, Donald Ross, and Pete Dye. In short, their past work demands closer inspection, which I believe will lead to greater admiration. All this is a way into talking about Paul Cowley. Cowley was with the Love Brothers from the beginning and was in charge of the planning and construction elements of each of their courses up through the completion of Diamante Dunes in 2010, rated one of the top 40 courses in the world. Cowley was essentially the driving force behind the technical side of the operation, but he also became known as having one of the most artistic, original design minds in the business. At a number of projects, which we get into in detail in the podcast, Cowley created high-concept solutions to particular problems that redefined or became the thematic blueprint for the entire golf course. In fact, I've often noticed similarities between what Mike Strands was doing and what's inside much of the Love Cowley portfolio. Cowley went to build Diamante Dunes in Cabo and essentially never left. He ran the construction site of Diamante's Tiger Woods Bowwilling El Cardinal course and continued on at the resort, overseeing all elements of construction, from renovations to the golf course, to structural and landscape projects, to building the newly opened Himalaya-style putting course. Paul is one of the beloved figures in the industry, a great lover of life who straddles both the Apollonian and Dionysian sides of design. When I first conceived of doing this podcast, his was one of the original names I wrote down on my get list. It probably took too long to do it, but I'm extremely glad I was able to finally put a checkmark next to his name. Enjoy listening to me speaking on, unfortunately, a not-so-great FaceTime connection with one of the great golf thinkers, Paul Cowley. You know, we have... Great writing from the 19-teens and early 1900s and 1920s. The, the architects of that period were prolific, and they they documented their thoughts. And, you know, there were more golf publications that focused on architecture. And then we went decades without really, I guess, knowing what was on the minds of the people that were building golf courses and developments, because I suspect they took those arguments 
inside the ASGCA and there wasn't a drive to publish and you know the media changed as well and we're in an age now where where information is so readily available that we can do podcasts like this and things we don't have to wait every month for a magazine an edited story in a magazine to come out you know so these are like long form feature stories with with architects that anybody can access for you know years and years to come you know, it's interesting. I, I've thought about that, you know, myself about it. the great literature in global architecture was all back in the early, you know, 1900s. You know, maybe as once we got to the point where we had telephones and other stuff, I think people would write a whole lot easier back in those days. And we started getting media and telephones, and now we end up with all, you know, all the stuff we have now. So you probably people don't write as well as they they used to. Well, there's certainly yeah, good good writing is. It's not a lost art, but it's it's less common amongst professionals than it seemed to be because everybody back from that period was so, I don't know if they were as educated as they sound, but they sure sounded educated and, and well-spoken. No, they did, absolutely. So, Yeah, let's start off this way. Paul and um, I'm gonna let's do a little word association and I'll I'll say a, a word or a name or a phrase and I just want you to kind of say what for you first comes to mind or, or whatever your opinion is on on this t- first topic. So the the first one I'm going to give to you is C. B. McDonald. Uh, great, uh, you know, great architect. Uh, you know, one of one of the best in the very beginning. You know, I loved every approach he had to how he studied to study and what he ended up doing with his. You know, all his pattern holes and everything else. I think it was a, you know, very great guy. Do you take, so so in your practice, how, we just talked about, you know, you would you would read some of the old architects from that period. What do they mean to you as it applies to how you design a golf course? The, um, as you know, I've worked with Davis and Mark Love, you know, for about 22 golf courses together. And, you know, we had a particular fondness for, you know, Rainer and, and C.B. McDonald and Ross as well. In fact, we, you know, so we would study those. Davis particularly liked uh, using features from, uh, especially Rainer and C.B. McDonald. Uh, we kind of combined them at times with kind of Ross elements, and we, and we kind of jokingly called them Rosnor, you know, for, yeah. you know, play on that. So, yes, now I've, uh, you know, and in studying golf now, and we've never, and I've never, you know, uh, approached it as one style of golf design period. In fact, I like I don't like to be in a box with a style. I'd rather, you know, look you know, discover a site and, and, and just go from there. Usually it's analysis of, you know, what the givens are that the site gives you that you really can't change. You know, and identify those first and then try to, you know, work out the different options, all different design options that you can do and then eventually settle on something. So uh, it has the same to do with styles as far as styles, whether she did Donald Rain or Ross, you know, uh, and the modern. I mean, I think I think the last 20 years have been probably one of the most exciting periods of golf design, you know, with all the Corn Crenshaw and all the other, you know, Tom Doak and all the others that, you know, that we uh, are you know, approaching the golf design entirely differently. I guess one of the questions that I always have is how long will this current movement play out? Or have we just gotten to a status in golf design where we can never go back and we'll just kind of stay in this lane as long as we get, I say we, but I mean you all, your people in your practice, as long as you get good sites, you will sort of build that naturalist look that, that Tom and, and Bill and, and Gil have popularized so much? 
I think I think they will to an extent. You know, part of me has always been that I I want to see golf. Um, you know, really for the common man, you know, as it was originally, just very much easy, you know, non-expensive golf, uh, just you know, great elements of design, but but doesn't cost a lot. And I I think at times some of the better courses we're building now, the very best courses, still cost a lot of money, even though we're on the spectacular sites. So, I, you know, I'd love to see uh, just everyday common man golf. So, what would that look like? Um. I did a course uh, called Orchard Creek in Altamont, uh, New York, mm-hmm. and that's actually my hometown. You know, we spent like $1.2 million in a day and uh, made a, you know, 50 trips, not 50 trips, uh, you know, 13 trips there, which wasn't much. We didn't have a big budget, and I got paid very little for the job. But it still is one of my favorite courses. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's really well received in the community. It's, it's, uh, it's challenging. Uh, they've got a great restaurant. They've got a great bar with it. They, they set up a a big wedding facility, so now half their, facility, half their money is coming in from weddings and other stuff. But uh, it's tremendously successful. They have great leagues, and that's the kind of what I, what I definitely enjoy. But I imagine those were what the you know the the hitches and North Barracks were back in their day. You know, just more of the you know the uh, just the, the golfing group. How much did that golf course cost to build? One point two million. Uh, it was four brothers. It was an apple farm, and they had eighty acres that had gotten the apples had gotten old, and they had to, uh, uh, you know, they were either going to replant them, and it cost in those days about five to eight thousand dollars an acre to replant apples. By the time you take them out of production, and then you know, eight or nine years later, you're back in production again. And so instead of spending that, you know, that whatever seven hundred thousand dollars, they thought maybe they'd diversify and do something like golf, and, and that's when they got in touch with me. And, um, you know, they, they spent a whole bunch of their time uh, working because they were uh, working apple farmers. They had a lot of equipment, so they did it. But I brought in the Shapers, the Robinson Brothers. I don't know if they're still around, but they were uh, from North Carolina. They had done you know, a lot of work in that area. Uh, they came up to New York and just good old country Shapers. And then, uh, you know, we put them, they did their own irrigation. And so it was just, it was just kind of a, a joint effort of... Uh, I mean, that just seems like not, it's not possible <laughs> to build a golf course for $1.2 million. How did you, what yeah, were some of the other things that, that enabled that to, to happen? I mean, you had owners, I'm sure, who were working with you and, um, you know, you, if you install your own, you know, do a lot of your own labor, but still, I, I don't get it. We did, well, we, you know, we built our own clubhouse and I designed the clubhouse. Uh, it, actually, it became uh, the year it came out, uh, 1999, I think, was uh, it was Golf Digest Best New Bargain of the Year. You know, mm-hmm. that so I got some notoriety there. But and, and it still it still works. It's one of the capital districts, the you know, Albany area capital districts. You know, favorite you know favorite courses. It gets awards all you know all the time. But mainly because I mean the, the, the golf course is good, but it's also the whole operation, the people, uh, you know, the experience. Um, it's a you know beautiful site. You got great food, the beer. You know, it's just a, it's just fun. We got, you know, it's just a fun place to play. What else about that particular golf course? I mean, you called it Everyman Golf. What else about what is the key to making a course like that successful? Does how important is location? Is it does it work better in your mind if you're in a, a small community like Altamont? Uh, what are the and what can we take away from? What are the lessons of Orchard Creek? 
I, I envisioned it more the way golf was, you know, 60, 80, 90, 100 years ago. You know, it wasn't the, uh, and that, you know, it's for actually, you know, for, for just working men, people who would just go out and play golf, you know, it's fun on weekends or after work or, you know, it wasn't expensive because people couldn't afford it. I mean, I, I grew up on a, a muni of, it was 6,300 yards long and, uh, Western Turnpike Golf Course. And that was my first, um, experience to golf, you know, as, you know, 10, 12 years old. And that was just really, it's just flat, you know, but I love golf. And I started, I started, that, that kind of took me off. And then I, my father took me to, uh, the leather stocking course in, uh, in Cooperstown, New York when I was about 14 or 15. And that just, that just blew me away. It was like, uh, and I didn't know golf could be this good. You know, the, uh, when you're familiar with the leather stocking, I'm sure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's but specifically uh, it was, what, what impressed you about leather stocking. Cause it was, it was shaped and it was, there was a whole nother, uh, you know, thing going on in design. I, I thought golf at that point was just pretty much flat and you put some holes out there, and, mm-hmm. but no, everything was shaped and it was the strategies and, and the, the whole site is spectacular. You know, uh, there's story lines behind, you know, I could create a storyline behind uh, every hole. You know, this is the hole that does this, that does that. You know, I could see it. I could read it. And that was, you know, it just was a whole eye-opening experience for me. And actually from that, that got me on the road a couple of years later to, to go study and, and work at golf courses and um, trying to find, the, you know, learn more. Uh, in those days, and still in these days, there's no way you can... Um, there's no college degree for golf course architecture per se. You know, it just kind of led me on a journey. When I was 19, I I took off one winter and wanted to try to find a golf course that I could work at to learn more in the winter because uh, you can't work up upstate New York where I'm from in the in the uh, you know in the winter. So I went to Disney. I thought that look at the golf courses there and think that would that would be a you know a good place to you know, spend the winter and maybe learn something. There was no work there, so I kept on going. I went through New Orleans, couldn't find any work, and eventually worked on offshore oil rigs for about three months and got, got some money again, and then I made a beeline to Pebble Beach and just um, knocked on the door there. I got in that night, knocked on the door the next morning, and said, hi, I'm Paul Kyle, I'm looking for a job. And, you know, the, the head, he said, oh, by the way, we had just lost, let me, we just, somebody just left us yesterday. I said, when can you start? And I, you know, I said, well, tomorrow or today if you want. So anyway, I was hired right away, and that was kind of a an interesting thing because the uh, I knew then that if I had written a letter to Pebble Beach, which I thought was the best golf course in the world at the time, you know that would have probably gone in the circular file if you're looking for work. And but I learned that if by knocking on a door and being there, it just you know, made a big difference. And you kind of have to, you know, you got to put yourself in position for luck to happen. And that was one of my first kind of experiences there. Pebble was spectacular. I mean, in those days, the DuPont Corporation owned it. That was the, I mean, Del Monte owned it, which was the, uh, you know, the, the people with the buy handles. And, and they had, the people who had been there, uh, the greenskeepers were basically, when I was, this was like 1970, uh, were basic, the greenskeepers at that point were, you know, uh, ex-Portuguese, uh, uh, Sardine fishermen, and you know they were on the. We had you know big you know big gang reel tractors and stuff on Pebble Beach. That there was no <clears throat> there was no irrigation in the in the roughs, and uh, so everything would turn brown. Uh, there was no cart pass because the carts were just starting to come, and that was you know so it was really you know 
Pebble Beach back when it looked like something that could have been like, you know, over within the hinge. I mean, it really was that rough and, and ragged. And the, uh, um, I think I'm fortunate to be able to see that. I know they, the next open that came through in the late 70s, they irrigated the roughs. And, you know, we put cart, they, you know, put the cart paths in them. You know, it changed. Um, it changed a lot. But uh, just out of curiosity, what were the green fees in there's anybody in the world that can do that now no no you can't everybody puts under bucket list and you, you play it once and that's it you know and you know i played it like my my own uni and it, and it was spectacular uh, you see it all the different weather all the different conditions and, um but anyway so that's yeah so when you do, did you get a chance to watch the u.s open this year uh yeah i did no and it, it's uh, i think they've I think it went a decline after that time for a while. I think it was kind of a mishmash from the 70s, 80s, 90s. It was trying to figure out what it was. And then after the Palmer Group bought it and the whole thing, they, they steadily they steadily improved it. I think, I think it's probably better now than it ever was from what I can see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I liked it back when I was there because it was raw and rugged and it was lengthy. But if it's not going to be that, I think it's, I think the, uh, what it is, the shape it is now is, is you know, it's just great. So, yeah. Well, going back to Orchard Creek, and we can we can get back to that phase of your life in a little bit. But going back to Orchard Creek, and you mentioned you went to leather stocking and saw a style of design that actually had some thought behind it and an intent behind the design. It made me think in this concept of of your every man's golf and what makes that golf course successful. There seems to be a, a minor trend in architecture right now to be a little bit more accommodating. To scoring uh, and 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 encouraging a a good score out of people, designing width and certain features on the golf course that help people get along and kind of get a sense of confidence and and that's the thinking is that may be uh, an element that's been missing that's going to help bring people to the game and keep people in the game as if they have a little more more fun. Where do you fall on that? I'm torn because I don't know. You know, the part of the appeal of golf is 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 the inherent challenge of it. It's hard enough just to hit the ball, but but you want to also oh, be challenged is. by the golf course. Well, I'm all on the fun side, you know, and I, and I, you know, if I had to, if you told me you like, uh, uh, you know, I'm like North Berwick and Lynch on the fun side of things. Those to me are fun golf courses, you know, they're, they're quirky and they're neat. Um, and they're on the top of the, the fun, the fun heap. Um, I'd much rather play those than some of the more difficult, uh, you know, you know, courses in the you know go to, on the on the open road in the you know the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think all the courses that I do are fun to a certain extent. Um, 
people consider Orchard Creek fun. You know, it's it's uh, you know it's seventy one or seventy two hundred yards long, but I've got a lot of quirky stuff in there which which they like. You know, and it was a uh, we I could only couldn't move much dirt, and you know, on, on one hole we had run out of money, so uh, it was number six. It's a par three going uphill, and I had to had enough money to knock the hill down so you could see the green. All I did was just do a buried elephant in the little green, and, and that was it. You know, and it's still. You know, people, which is, you know, it's interesting still to a lot of people and enjoy it. Um, I mean, I, th- I think what ha- we we definitely, architecture definitely went too far in the difficulty direction. And I don't know if it was intentional or if just in, in the arms race to make golf courses look great and dramatic by using, you know, deep bunkers and, and water features, golf got really, really hard for many decades. And to what you said, you know, the last 20 years or so, there's definitely been a movement back toward not being penal and being more strategic and, and open. But I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm almost seeing like that, that needle is continuing to move into where instead of like not being punishing and, and being friendly, now you're being like, you're almost giving the player a good score. And, and I wonder if, 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 if that is, is maybe moving I don't know what I don't know what I think about that. I mean, I like the score yeah, well, well too. You know, it's it's easy it's easy to make a golf hole from the design standards. It's easy to make a golf hole too hard. I mean, and and that means too hard for a lot of the wrong reasons. But that's one of the easiest things to do, and it's easiest conversely to make it too easy, you know, boring or whatever. So you know the you know the, it's it's in the middle. It's finding that middle zone that that's you know yeah. really where the, the design is all about. I agree with you. you no, know, it's uh, length is is. Uh, uh, is overrated, you know, and I and I don't personally like designing for the top five percent of the players. Um, you know, you definitely have to you know, include them. And I'm sure so many in, in, this comes out in so many interviews, but but you know, it's the you know it's the middle mass that I want to work with. Well, we got some good mileage out of CME McDonald. That took us in a few different places. The, the next word I'm going to throw at you is stimp meter. Stimp meter. Uh, stint meter, uh, personally, I think, I think you get over 11 or 11.5, you've, you've gone too far. Because what happens then is you have to mellow the greens down so much, so, you know, you, you can't have enough, you know, slope in them, because you've got to, you know, else, you know it just it gets too fast. So, um, I design in the 8.5 to 9.5, 10 range, and we have a lot of movement on, on you know, our our green green surfaces, uh, which we like, um, you know, very much. Personally, I like to see the longer a ball can stay in motion on a green, I think the more interesting it is. And that's, you know, through the use of, you know, backstops, you know, fresh fronts, all sorts of, you know, different as opposed to just kind of a flat, flattish green that lets you skip at, you know, 13 or 14 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think you're definitely the very contour, I, you know, I, uh, I just did a uh, a putting horse, which I sent you some pictures of. Yes, yeah. Now post those yeah. those photographs of this on the web, on the uh, show notes in the show notes. I forgot what that was called on the show notes for this uh, podcast. Yeah. So, um, go, but go on. I'm sorry. No, but that you know, that's that's a good example of now that wouldn't that would what I wanted to do with that putting course was include a lot of elements that you that you might find on some of the golf holes we have, say at Diamante or wherever I might be designing. Now, it's exaggerated in that if you want me to talk about the putting course, I will, or I can talk about a, 
later, but I mean that those those are exaggerated contours, but it makes a really fun course for putting. Um, and that doesn't need to spend more than nine, nine and a half at the most. Because even then, even now, it's uh, it, it can just get well. You have to stay within the bounds of the contours of the golf course. So, uh, yeah, I mean it's fascinating. There are some. I don't know how, how big are the contours. Like what? What's the the elevation change on this putting course? There is very dramatic. Uh, overall, it's probably thirty thirty five feet. I mean, there's some some holes have ten foot you know elevation changes. You know yeah. what I look for is. You know, basically, it's uh, this course has you know has uh, you know fifteen holes and, and uh, twelve par threes and, and three par uh, twos, um, but it can be played in both directions. I don't know if the picture doesn't show you that. We have the east course, which is one day the fins are you know the flies are going in that direction. You're starting off, and then we have the west course because we all, we switch the flies around every every other you know every day, every other day. So basically, you've got so the hole that you're playing downhill one day, next day you're playing uphill, and so you, you know, basically you got thirty holes. You know, I, uh, we've handicapped it, you know, so you can play it as you know it's great for betting or for you know after an after round, yeah, uh, you know, spin around. It takes about twenty twenty. Well, for two, some say it takes twenty twenty five minutes to play. Um, the uh, it's right off the number one tee. I don't know if you noticed in the photos of the the Diamante at the Dunes course at Diamante. Mm-hmm. So she's part of that. I think, you know, it's, it's great fun. I like to do more of that. I'm seeing, you know, people, you know, kids are out there learning. You have foursomes there that, you know, are really good players and, 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 and their wives that are all having a great time. You know, it, it, anybody can putt, you know, fortunately. Um, it's easy. So it's, a, it's something that I would like to do more of. Um, this was a great site, as you can tell. It's probably one of the nicest views of all of Diamante. It used to be the second half of the 18th hole, which we we moved. Um, so so we still use it as an event lawn, and now it's a putting course, so it can be right. used for a lot of, a lot of yeah. Games. And these hole, these holes range from like 16 yards, like a part two, 16 yards to like 65 yards. Yeah, you know, almost 200 feet. We have a 200 foot putt. You know, I made that, by the way. Oh yeah. Uh, had a hole in one. Oh yeah. You know, it's a. You put right a now, down so everybody remembers. My best, the best score that I know of is I'm not going to be minus is mine. I'm minus seven is the is what I think the course record. We've only opened up for like three or four months, so I'm sure somebody will beat that. But it's par par is a very good score here. You know, for a good yeah. player. And she had doesn't really have to. Once you start learning it, you can start. You know, you know, finding different ways to play it. Uh, yeah, those are the, these are the funnest things. The putting course, uh, whether it's Thistledew at Pinehurst or um, there's a great one at Gamble Sands in Washington. It's right outside the mm-hmm. cottages, you know. And you, people will be out there at night drinking, having, like you said, having matches that you know they can get pretty rowdy. Um, do it in the dark. I mean, it just it strikes me as it's it's unfortunate that golfers have to travel to these kind of remote destinations to experience something like that. I mean, w- wouldn't it be great if, if some town had the resources or the wherewithal to build, and it doesn't have to be as epic as, as the years at Diamante, but, but like a, a four or five hole putting course, like in a park in town or, you know, in the downtown section, yeah, we've think- got a, the town I live in has this, this kind of plaza and it's got restaurants all around it. And there's this, this green space that is just, you know, people, 
play frisbee on it occasionally, but I, I see putting greens there. It's like we could really inject golf right into the heart of the city if we could have the money to do this. You know, and it doesn't have to be that expensive either. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think that's a great idea. You don't need that much acreage. Where was this town, by the way? Are you Atlanta area? Or yeah, this is this is Decatur, Georgia. Okay, Decatur, sure. Yeah, it's got a, a beautiful, like, little strolling plaza, and uh, it's just the perfect place. You know, people, while you're waiting for your table or after dinner, or send the kids out. You want a, a dinner alone? You don't need a babysitter. Let, let them go putt for 30, 40 minutes. Well, that, well that's what they do here for, on, on the Diamante course, too. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, the, there's a restaurant that's right there's a clubhouse restaurant right there, so kids are all playing it and adults. And then I find you know, sometimes there'd be 10 or 15 beer bottles out there the next morning when they go to the moment when it, you know, so it's getting a share of use tonight too. And it's yeah, like, yeah. So you mentioned, um, you, we're talking about stint meters and, and it's definitely from the work that I've seen you execute um, with the Love Design Group. i big fan of your, your green contours. That you do like to really make that, those putting surfaces stand out and have a lot of character and movement, which is great. I had read uh, some, when I was kind of studying up for this interview, I had read something about the Cardinal course there at Diamante, that the greens were a little more tame there, perhaps in the chance that there could be a high level tournament played at some point. And then in that case, they would want to speed the greens up beyond, you know, 10 or 11. Is that the case there? Did did you have to make an adjustment on the design with that? Well, we did, and that was a Tiger Woods design as well, you know, with uh, Shane Robichard and Bo Welling. So yeah. that's, they're his designers. Now, I, I project managed the golf course to build it and stuff, but I, so I wasn't really involved in the design as much, but I was very involved in the construction, and, um, you know, of the greens. And so we were trying to get it, you know, the best that, you know, Tiger and, you know, Bo and Shane wanted. So, um, but they did, they put in, uh, some lesser contours, just exactly for what you said, I think. So, uh, you could get the stint up higher. Now, we're, unfortunately, or fortunately, we're, we're using past pollen, uh, past pollen up there. And it's hard to get past pollen in our experience down here to stint, you know, more than, you know, for, at a longer, greater than 11 for any length of time. I mean, you can get it up to 11 or 12, 11 and a half to 12 for a tournament, but you can't keep it at that. Mm-hmm. At least we haven't been able to, and I think that you know, we're, um, so that's it. But but I think no, it definitely it's it stems to uh, one or one and a half more than the dunes course, and I and I think people really like that. Actually, there's a there's a nice variety between the dunes course, which is you know all dunes, and other and and, and and tigers course, which is up in the desert, and it's a whole different look with arroyos, and and it plays differently, a whole different you know, and and people, I think it's a great. Uh, option for for the members to play because they're playing totally different courses. So, yeah, what was it like working with with that with uh, Welling Design in Tiger Woods? I had I had Bo Welling on this podcast uh, a while back, and he talked about you know how Tiger approaches design a little bit, but but not too much. What was it like working with them, and what were your takeaways? Um, you know, a lot, a lot of it is very much like that Davis and Mark and I work. You know, we're uh, you know, you know, Davis has his day job, or he's always had his day job. So we, we wouldn't get him on the golf course as much as, you know, we, we should have him there all the time if he wanted, but he couldn't be. So we, and, and Tiger's the same way, you know. So you, they'd come in, we, you know, we, you know, go over what we've done and, and go over what we want to do, do. The new stuff is coming up, and get everybody's ideas and insights, and uh, um, you know, then kind of work from there. So it's uh, very similar. Uh, both Tiger and Davis, you know, have played the best courses and competed on the best courses in the world. 
you know, I think subconsciously or consciously to uh, to really play a hole, you have to analyze it, you know, all the elements to play it well, the elements that you get in your way, you want to avoid or what you like. And and, uh, and I think both of those, both Davis and Mark, have that intelligence uh, to appreciate that. So innately they do have good, you know, that corresponds or translates into a, you know, design ideas. So it's very easy for, you know, you know Davis knows what he likes about certain elements of design and what he doesn't like, and I'm sure Tiger's pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. You know, Bo and Shane have had a lot of experience in the Fazio organization. That's where we first met, you know, both of them. Um, so they had a lot of, you know, ideas and, you know, things that they can, you know, from different courses they've worked on in the past. So, you know, they, it's it was interesting. Tiger is, uh, he, he came as often as he could, actually more than I expected, which was great. I mean, it was very enthusiastic and it was a good experience. And you know, we're looking forward to, I think, we're going to be building the second course here in another, uh, another year or two. But, um, I think uh, it'll be a Tiger again. So probably the same crew, I hope, building mm-hmm. design. Throughout your career, you've always been very hands-on and very lo- locked into the site, and, and you spend a lot of time on the property that you're building. I do, and that's what I like about the game. I mean, what I like about my background is in oh, landscape. I'm a landscape architect. I'm a land planner. I'm what, uh, you know golf course architect now as well, but I incorporate, and I'm sure I do a lot of building art structure or structural design in the past. Um, but I know it's... To me, it's a process. I like being outside, you know, like when we, uh, and working. Uh, I couldn't, I'm not, you put, I'm like working office when I need to, but I'd rather be outside. You know, when we did the barefoot courses, the, uh, back in like, 2000 or whenever, we were building the Davis Law, the Greg Norman, the Tom Fazio, and the Pete Dye course all at once in the barefoot mm-hmm. complex. In Myrtle um, Beach. Was, in Myrtle Beach, and that was, uh, um, really exciting for me because it was one of my first courses that I had more full-time design input besides drawing the routings and other stuff. This one I was, you know, I was there for the day-to-day, which I which I like, and I actually put a, you know, all that whole complex was built on the other side of the of the intercoastal. They hadn't put there, they put a bridge in, but the bridge hadn't been built then. So everybody at night would all the different crews, the four different, you know, because we were building with four courses at once, so everybody had their own crew and they would all go back to Conway or drive around and I ended up with a I put a trailer in our course and I would stay there, you know, many nights and just uh, which was so exciting for me because I'd take get in my A T V and while the other crews would leave and i I could visit the guy or the Fazio or Norman and see how they're doing and you know, grab a six pack or whatever bottle of wine and it was a great design experience for me. Then I'd go back and cook chicken and, and sleep in my trailer and I was there in the morning. So it was a that's what I like to do. I like to, it's exciting for me to be on site, you get ideas, and uh, and I like it as much when the people are gone as, as when they're there. Yeah, I did not realize, I guess, that all the courses were constructed at the same time. That's a pretty yeah, remarkable were, project. No, that was, it, was, it, was, it was remarkable because it, it was funny. There's so many, not, I don't want to say egos involved. I remember our first, our first uh, meeting of the, uh, representatives from Dye and Norman and, and uh, Fazio and um, all of us were in love were, were there when we started off the meeting and uh, the, the owner said I want to everybody's here because we're all going to 
we're going to build four courses at once. We're going to use the same contracts and share and do all our other, you know, all the other, you know, share each other for economy of scale and stuff. And like, if we want to get asphalt, we're going to do all asphalt cart paths. And, and Mr. Dye was in the was in the back. And he goes, "Okay, sunshine." And I think that's his name. He said, "We're out of here." And he stood up. He started walking out. And everybody goes, "Mr. Dye, Mr. Dye, what's the problem?" He goes, "I, I don't want to use asphalt." And um, you know, so it. It kind of devolved from there. We all ended up doing our own, our own people. Everybody has your own shapers and other things we use. But it was, it was an interesting experience. It really was. I think that was one of the earliest courses that, in the career of uh, Greg Norman, and to see his designs, which were at that time very low to the ground, very <clears throat> greens. It was very low profile, which surprised me. But I, but you know, that's, but it was very interesting. You know, the Fazio course was, uh, you know, a very good Fazio, a lot of bunkers. And, and I watched uh, Pete Dye, you know, build his horse with the uh, first course I'd seen being built with an excavator. I mean, <laughs> there'd be an excavator, you know, and not a whole lot of dozers, but an excavator just shaping his way down the fairways on the inside, building up mounds and throwing up dirt. And, and I found that fascinating, too. So it was yeah, incredible, right? I mean, just different ways. And, if, and especially that period in time in 2000, this is like the apex of golf course construction in the United States. Everybody's flush. They were still building a million courses. And these are like some of the top firms and everybody approaches it slightly differently. And, you know, the level of, of uh, like you just alluded to, earth moving is, is going to be different. The outcomes are going to be different. What a, what a Petri dish for studying architecture from that period. It really, it really was. And everybody wanted to be different from each other as well. To stand out, so they were pushing yeah. the those design edges too were being pushed. You know, we that was, we, we ended up doing what uh, I had thrown on the on the plans originally had some ruins. And I think I think we've talked about this with Mark Love before, but that was one way to, to approach things differently. We had what was widely uh, you know considered the, not the, the least the site with the least uh, <laughs> attributes. I should. Uh, you know, for the love course, and it was very flat. Yeah, that's saying boring. a lot in in Myrtle Beach. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and uh, constantly the next door to us was Normandy. They had actually some real little dunes and some contours, but we had nothing. So um, we decided, uh, you know, at one point, I, I personally like to get involved in the historic elements. Doesn't bother me at all. Or, um, I enjoyed that. I especially intrigued with places like Dunbar and North Barrick and places where you had structural elements or architectural mm-hmm. elements, whether it be walls or, or ruins. And, and mm-hmm. uh, in fact, Mark and I had played in uh, Dunbar and some other places, and, and we liked that. So I, I suggested we do that at, at you know for four holes at, uh, at Barefoot, and um, I put them on the plans and. <clears throat> You know, everybody just didn't really notice by the plans that came to start building it. You know, we built a, a platform for four holes. It was like 10 feet higher than the, the surrounding area. We built it up. And the idea there was that we're going to build a, you know, an antebellum plantation, you know, ruin. And this would have been the, the plantation house that was up above the cotton field down below or whatever we were doing. And um, so when the time came, I said, okay, we need 20,000 old bricks, you know, whatever. And, and so, and at that time, they were tearing down more old mills in, in the south and all over and sort of selling reclaimed brick. And so they went ahead and sent me the brick. And so I started building the ruins. And we had, I asked for, had some masons who, who were assigned to this. And we had to take concrete blocks and I'd lay up foundations. And 
you know, then I, you know, build them up so high and then knock them down a bit with the concrete block. And I, I the concrete block, we needed really good thick walls. I did a lot of study of ruins around uh, in the south there, antebellum ruins, but it makes them thick enough. We use, you know, eight inch concrete block and then put bricks on either side. So you end up with a 16, 18 inch thick wall. And then we just started building them. And, uh, the, uh, when the, Masons finally started using the brick, which was the final thing. I said, okay, build it up this <clears throat> this high. And then they, uh, the first day we did that, and then I, I got up next morning and I took a sledgehammer and knocked down the brick <laughs> because it's hard to tell people to, okay, you know, we're building the room. And, and you'll, you know, yeah, you just you just threw your back out yesterday building this wall. I'm going to knock it down now. Yeah. And that, well, the bad part was, was that they were getting paid by the bricks. <laughs> you know? and they told me the next morning, they go, well, we go, we're getting paid by the bricks. Right? And I said, oh, my God. So, so from then on, and they kind of got the idea that we were trying to build a ruin. But, uh, so they count, I said, you count your brick as you put in at the end of the day because they might be not there. It, it was, it was interesting. It was fun. You know, we built, I built 24 inch, you know, brick columns up 10, 12 feet that would knock them over with a backhoe. So they'd break like they were. Um, it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. it's it's become the sort of like the symbol of that whole complex. Not just not just the love course, but just when you think of barefoot, it's the you think of these ruins that you created. This was funny, you know. It's even taken on a kind of a legend of its own because a lot of people are telling people these ruins are always there. And I've got two letters from people in the South Carolina and different historical stuff thanking thanking us for. You know, preserving the ruins and making them part of the golf course. And these are from government <laughs> officials, so it's uh, you know it's believable. And that's You're that's the main thing. That that was I think Davis and Mark's biggest concern was that you know this can't be hokey. It's got to be believable. And I think I think it's believable. So we kind of went a different direction on that one, and on yeah. other couple other places too. So well, so just to stick with this uh, project for a little bit longer. You're at night. Everybody leaves the island. You're out there by yourself, or almost by yourself, and you have your ATV and you're looking at what other people are building as they're building it. Like, what are your impressions? Are are you are you stealing ideas from them to convey to uh, Mark and Davis, or are you impressed with what they're with? What, you know what everybody else is doing, and and how come nobody else from the other firms were looking at your stuff, wondering like uh, why is this guy trying to build a castle? We, we were well, we were the new people on a block. I think this was like our fourth or fifth. So nobody really expected much from us, and we didn't have much of a track record. So, you know, I was uh, I was like babes in Toyland for me. I mean, I, you know, to go see the Fazio crowd, to die, and, and, and Norman, and just have the run of the place for you know, 2,000 acres or whatever, literally by myself, because nobody was there. They all left. Uh, it was great. No, it was spectacular. You know, I can look at the things I like or what I didn't like. Uh, you know, that's all designs you know which is a little different options why people do stuff you learn as much from what you like and, and as much from what you don't like so that's what you don't like as much as whatever the reverse of that so um yeah it was great no it's spectacular it's a great uh wouldn't have traded it for anything it's a great learning experience from all angles just on this thought you know you mentioned that the love course was considered to have been built on maybe the poorest of the four sites for whatever that's worth. Diamante Dunes was one of the great sites in the world that's been developed in the last, you know, 20, 30 years or so. But most of the projects that you, you've worked on, at least with, with Love Design, were not on great properties. And I wonder if you can draw a distinction between um, 
a bad property and maybe something like Barefoot, which is just a flat property? What, how, well, how do you, you put know, it? As, it, it it's, as a designer, um, you know, I ask myself at times, would I rather have an unlimited budget on a, on a flat piece of land in Kansas or something like, uh, you know, Diamante Dunes? Um, you know, and, and if, if I really had to pick, I would probably take the budget, unlimited budget, in a flat piece of Kansas, because then you, you know there's no, no give. It's just nothing in your way. It's only you're only as good as what you can imagine, and that's a great challenge. Now, a Diamante, as much as and I absolutely now on the other side of the coin to have the opportunity to build on one of the you know top 100 golf sites in the world is, is something I would never want to trade. You know, the, the experience is and still is wonderful. You know, it was, uh, I was the first patient on the property. The owner brought me, asked me to down to qualify the property for golf to see if he, I felt, or we felt as a group that we could build a good golf course. And uh, it was suitable for development. And I, I, I wandered in from, you know, off the property and uh, by myself. I was dropped off that gate. And when I finally got up on the first big dune to see the ocean, I, I felt like I was bizarro discovering the Pacific. I mean, it was just, it still is. It was like, oh my god! And it's I that was a pretty, it, pretty short visit. Yes, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, we did, but I'll be honest. It was in its raw form. I mean, it was the wind was blowing, and it was 100, 150 foot sand dunes. And I was, the hell are you doing stabilizing stuff? You know, back in, you know, sand hills have all these issues with, you know, desiccation of grass and things blowing and blowout bunkers and stuff and. And uh, and that had been built previous. So I'm thinking, oh God, to rebuild here. And I, I so it took. I was kind of scared to, to give the green light, but no, we definitely did. Uh, or at least I considered that. Um, the neat thing down here, which we discovered, is that since it's not freezing and it's not cold, if you put water on it, you can stabilize it. So, but we didn't know that at the time. But now the dunes are awesome. Now. You know, Tom Doak came down uh, and spent a day with me because when we were building it, we hadn't really grasped much at all. And uh, it was interesting. We walked all around, looked at the whole thing, and, and you know, Tom, you know, he's a great guy to be with. And he, but he told me in the middle of it, and he goes, you know, uh, you know, how, how, how do you, he's asking me why, and I was like, he would be more of an expert. He asked me, why doesn't, you know, how, how are you, you know, approaching this whole thing? Because he's never worked in sanding that strong. You know, I almost feel like, Diamante is kind of like the cashing course at uh, uh, oh God, Bally Bunyan. Yeah, Bally Bunyan. And the site is that strong. You know, and that surprised me with time. But then I thought about it. Yeah, he really hadn't had sites like that. But he was, uh, it was fun. Uh, it's a strong site. And I think we've, I think we got a lot out of it. Like we're still doing it. And I'm still here, still making changes um, as we need to. And, you know, it's been it's been an experience. I kind of feel like you know, uh, Donald Ross and number two. You know, we've added five new holes, and we just keep you know changing as we go. So it's good. I'll probably move on now that the uh, design world seems to be coming back. But it's been nice. I've been part here for seven years, and you know, I've done a lot of other stuff. But it's 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 been good. And I think one of the things that made me ask that question about the difference between. Uh, a property that might be considered bad just because it's flat and doesn't have a lot of features. That's and you mentioned you know you you would potentially like to work on a site like that if you had enough money because you can you know there's 
an ability, an opportunity to create so many, you know, unique and interesting things like you have in some of your past work. But then on the other end, what I consider a bad property is not a flat property. It's something like what a course you were building at the same time, roughly that you're building barefoot here in my market was Windermere. And this is where golf kind of jumped too far ahead or too far sideways or too far backwards, however you want to term it, because this is a, this is legitimately not a good property for golf. You know, it's, it's up and down. The soils are poor. You know, you're, you're, you're mixing it with uh, housing development. I mean, it's your typical North Atlanta suburban course. And there's some cool features about it. The individual holes are pretty neat, but it's just, you know, in reality, a golf course probably should not exist in on that type of property. It's funny because I haven't been to Windermere in fifteen, eighteen years. You know, not not long after it was built, and that was that was I think a third course or second course. You know, so we were anxious to do almost anything. But that that was a very challenging site. Uh, it really was. I loved it. How was how was it looking? I, I haven't been back. I well, back. I don't think I've been there in fifteen years either. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's um it's still there, and it's just um. It's it's just kind of what what I consider uh, what makes Atlanta golf one you know for a big American city it's got to have some of the worst golf you know I put it up against anybody as far as poor golf and poor golf sites a lot of it has to do with you know when the city expanded north into the suburbs and and the exurbs and they built that that's just not good golf property it's just too extreme Um, it's choppy yeah. Really well, let's is. move on. To, let's I'm move on to the people. It's nice to have a you know a golf hole in your backyard for that for the people that were there. I'm hoping they're enjoying it. Um, I'd love to go back and look at it sometime. I really yeah. would. So. Um, so let's move on to one more of these uh, word association questions. And what I'm going to say now is Forrest Fesler. Oh boy! Uh, Do you ever know Forrest? Did you ever get a chance to meet Forrest? I did. Not okay. not you know I didn't know him well by any means. Uh, he was a, a wonderful person, wonderful human individual. I mean, that, that's what stands out with, I think, about Forrest first. I see his smile. I see his neighbor, his head is a wonderful nature. Just a very, you know, just a great person. And aside from that, he was a, you know, a protege of Mike Strands and XPGA, you know, touring pro, uh, you know, the guy who you know, ran out of the portalette with shorts on and I forget which open it was, 70 something. And, uh, uh, on the last hole, I mean, he he was a he was a great guy. He was a, a person I'm so happy to have known in life and, and work with him in life and, and have you know, call him a friend. We did a couple golf courses together, uh, Rice Fields, and then we uh, from there we went out and worked with Lanny Watkins, who uh, who was a friend of Forrest, and uh, we did the uh, uh, Blackjacks Crossing out in West Texas and together. So um, great experience. Uh, Ball. I mean, Forrest was a, you know, it's funny, I think of Mike Strands, who was an artist as well, and, and he had that artist eye for detail, as you can tell from all his golf courses. And, you know, he and, and Forrest fully absorbed that from Mike. You know, he, there was no little detail that was too small that he, that wasn't important. And, you know, hey, Forrest, you want to do this? It might be a little different. He goes, no, no, that'd be great. And he just had great enthusiasm for that kind of design of elements. We ended up, uh, this was at the, you know, the beginning of the end of the, the recession of the right middle of the recession for golf. Uh, we formed, actually formed a company, uh, Fesler Cowley, to, 
we had a couple of golf courses we were looking at building in, in uh, you know, Rancho Cunada, a renovation, and a couple out in Monterey. But then the economy kept on falling apart, so we never got to, we never got to do our own courses together. Uh, would have been great fun. Um, we kind of lost track of each other. I went to Mexico and he came down here a couple times to visit with Deborah, his, his wife, but uh, then I didn't see him for four or five years. And, you know, about a year ago, I heard he had brain cancer. I tried to call him and couldn't, he couldn't really talk. We talked to his, Deborah, his wife, and then he passed away, you know, right before Christmas last year. So, yeah. too young, but great guy. Well, that it's, Obviously a loss for all of us that he's gone, but it's a loss for golf architecture that the two of you never got to team up and design something. I think the results would have been pretty, pretty notable. What was, how did you compliment each other from a, a design and architectural thinking perspective? Well, you know, he was very influenced by Mike. So he was very imaginative, that stuff. I, I'm kind of out of the box myself to, to a certain extent, you know, and, uh, and he fit right in. He's he's an outside person. Loves being outside from golf and working and construction. He fell right in with construction. I'm very much uh, you know part of the crew. I still have a thirty forty construction crew I run every day here out of Diamante, and it's just great. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the process. So we we complemented each other that way. I was I do you know I, I was the person who do all the drawing, you know, routing and grading plans, etc. That are needed to get the golf course. You know, to a starting point, then we just build it, and so now we 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 fit together very well. I'm not sure what else I want to say. Sure. Well, you know, one of the I always think we'll jump jump a little bit here. I personally have never think that Love, Mark, and Davis get the credit that they deserve for the the courses that they've produced. I, I think that there's so much out of the box design. If packed into their their courses, and you're a major part of that too. So I would almost kind of connect the work of Strands and Fesler with what you guys were doing. I mean, I don't think you guys were doing anything that was that manneristic and that exaggerated. But there's there were no boundaries in the, in the work that you and and Mark and Davis were making. And I, I'll use that as an example. You mentioned it ago, uh, rice fields which was a golf course, and I talked about this with Mark Love in our podcast. It's it's in Georgia. It's south of Savannah. It was going to be a big, high-end development. That it was going to attract a lot of wealthy people who would buy second or third property homes there. You could uh, there's going to be a marina. You could you know park your yacht and get access to the ocean. And in the middle of it, there's this golf course that you designed called Rice Fields, which is if it had you know been taken care of and if the the, pro, the whole development didn't have so many financial struggles and that golf course was still in existence i truly believe it's one of the best modern courses in the southeast it's so exciting and the features are so exciting and the green complexes are so inventive and there's so much movement there's a there's a punch bowl there's classic elements there's <laughs> new modern elements and then you get in the back nine that rice you recreated these these old rice patties and you have these high embankments bordering fairways and it's just i mean it's it's out it there fun. it's it's, it it's incredible fun. and that was that was our first course before us too so he was part of the the design team and we just you know it was fun uh, you know the the owner of that property uh you know, he was doing all the fantastic things we were talking about. You even mentioned this, the ski boat that would fly in there. And, you know, yeah. the, uh, right. he did everything. He, 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 
he'd ship down, uh, we'd do a little waterfall, or he'd do a little waterfall and ship down, you know, a, a 500, you know, brook trout and have a, you know, a fishing contest, you know, that, that kind of stuff. He was, he was a little out of the box himself. And so, but, you know, so we were, we didn't have a lot of restraints at, at Rice, at Rice Fields, you know. It, there's been four or three courses that we've done, uh, we talked about barefoot was where we created it created a landform of which to hang, you know, three or four golf holes on that as something of, you know, that, that wasn't there. It might be historical or whatever. We did the Patriot, which is built around a star fort, four holes, and then you had the, the ruins at, at the Barefoot, and then we have Rice Field. Um, and that was a boring area. It was flat. It was transitional area. There was hardly any elevation change between, you know, the marsh, which had views, and, and, and the uplands. So you had to dig typical of, of courses on the you know the southeast coast when you're on the you know on Hilton Head or whatever where you have to dig enough dirt to generate to raise your fairways up, you know, two or three feet to get drainage. So so you basically that was an element there. We would dig the dikes and dig all the take all the dirt from the lakes that we're creating these fake or faux rice fields and, and then uh, you know you gotta then we build it into something that you know, might have been there that we might have, you know, hung our, uh, had been there. We designed the golf holes on the old rice field. So it's kind of a, uh, but that was all basically trying to get dirt to, to, to you know, to, to have a golf hole out there. Um, and we shaped it into some neat things. I, I, I uh, it was fun. You know, it was a lot of fun doing that for those five holes there. In a way, I, have you seen that recently? Because it was getting overgrown, unfortunately. Um, no, it's been a number of years since I've been out there. I've heard it's it's been let go. Yeah, um, it could be. It's, it's still there. You know, it's a nice thing about a golf course. It, um, it's it's still there. Yeah, <laughs> unless you build a, a house there. or a parking lot yeah. on top of it. Yeah, you can bring yeah, it back. No, I think it's probably. But I, I'm with you. I hope that uh, it can regenerate itself somehow, or some developer, or some something, because it, it really was a neat, neat course. So much variety, so much, so much interest, so much strategy. Um, one of the coolest greens out there was the sixth green, and it's just it's such a it's a concept that I I don't recall seeing anywhere else, and it's kind of a almost a simple concept, but it as I recall, it's sort of it's angled away from the line of play, and you have to kind of carry this this big hump, and then it kind of flows away from you, and it almost like in a in a half pipe movement mm -hmm. and then there's some other stuff going on in there as well <laughs> and it kind of reminded me i'll ask you this first and you could, i'd like you to talk about the creation of that green if you would but also it, it reminded me a little bit of the first green at sanctuary cove uh, which almost has a has a kind of similar that, pipe so shape we call that one we call that one half pipe <laughs> for the okay. obvious reasons you yeah. know it's kind of a it was kind of an exaggerated form or a form you might not have seen in you know, C.B. McDonald type stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It fits in, like the first at, at Sanctuary Cove. It's a, it's basically a half pipe. It's, you know, sets likely diagonal, you know, uh, right to left. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a helper hole and it's, uh, it repels you away. And it's just, it's very simple. I mean, uh, the one at Riceville was a little more, took that a little more steroidal, you know, but um, <laughs> the same concept kind of. I guess if it's a pattern hole, that's one of our pattern holes that we've done twice, I think. Uh, yeah. No, it's fun. That's that's that type of green complex that I like and enjoy. And and you mentioned the Patriot building the the ramparts for this this old fortress. So and so you created that as well, right? Now I, I should have yeah. known this and I, I was pretty sure you did. 
Uh, but then I went, I had to go back on, on Google Maps and, and look into the past and make sure that there wasn't an old fortress there. And there, yeah, there right, wasn't. There's there was no, trees. No. That's another one that we got. We've got, you know, the state has told us, thank you for preserving the star fort from whenever. I've got letters about that one, too. Now, we built barrel-vaulted... Uh, uh, no, the ramparts there are about 35, 40 foot high in some spots, you know, and it's just a, it's a star fort. If you go to the, uh, I use, or we use for uh, uh, the pattern, uh, the Castilla de San Marco and San Augustine. Now that was in concrete or, or coquina shell, but mm-hmm. that's, that's the type of fort or star fort we, we model. Um, and, and it's a lot of purpose. I mean, it's not just as interest, but that was a tight area, very small, that, that we didn't have a whole lot of extra space on that golf course. Um, so that allowed us to star fort and the ramparts to separate number one hole, number 18 hole, number 10 tee, and uh, the putting green as well as the practice range. And it's all in a tight little area if you, if you look at it and study it. I and mean, it's really, it's remarkable you get that much stuff in there, but it's all because of the, the, the ramparts and the battlements. Um, we put more room in there. You kind of play into the on the 18th hole. You play over the moat into a into the center of the fort where there's you have old barracks that we built and they're kind of there. We have a nice big flag in the middle, and it's a it's a it's people don't get it's a private course. Hootie Johnson used to play there a lot with his wife. It doesn't it doesn't get much notoriety, but it's one of my favorite courses. Not just for the ruins, but I mean for the fort, just because it's it's fun. It's a, it's a uh, fun golf course. Well, I mean, these are the things that that l- give me this idea that you are a conceptual designer, or a, you have these high concepts and ideas. Like I to connect it back to strands a little bit, sort of this. Uh, just a, a different perspective on on how to build golf courses. There must be some something uh, the way you operate that frees up your mind because that's these are really bizarre, frankly bizarre ideas to incorporate into golf, and yet they they work and and they become iconic pieces of these projects. Well, it's just, yeah, it's just, you got to do something with the dirt. Um, well, so you're you're. Your father was a, a well-known artist in upstate New York and beyond, a really well-known artist. And your mom, I think you on your website, it says she was a horticulturist or comes from that kind of background, or, or that's what she did. That seems like a perfect sort of a genetic package to pack on, pass on to somebody who's going to become a golf course architect. Well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah I'm sure it definitely contributed. You know, my dad was an art professor at State University of New York at Albany for Chairman of the Art Department for years, a wonderful artist, great person, very creative. My mom was a, as you said, a horticulturist. She loved plants more than anything, and and I, I kind of fit in between. So, you know, it's a... It's, were you close to your father? Yeah, yeah, very close. Actually, both my parents are probably my two best friends. <laughs> I can say that pretty easily, but they're not here anymore, but... I've got so many memories, I, I'll never run out of great memories for both of them. Uh, well, so what, how do you approach art? I mean, are you are you a fan of, of painting, for instance? Is that a, Does that ever play into uh, your architectural practice? I'll, I'll, when we get off this interview, I'll show you, I'll send you a photo of my office here, and you'll kind of see everything's on the wall. Uh, yes, I've, I've done stained glass, I've, you know, I've done... You know, fine arts, you know, my dad, you know, I went to Irish art school too. But um, I'm, which my father and me, 
I appreciated him as a fine artist. He was a you know, painter, drawer of everything else, but his fine arts, his work, you, you, he basically does and you look at, you don't utilize. I'm more of a designer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I like to build things that, that, that I use and we use. So we both had a mutual fascination with each other because he, um, you know, building golf courses, or I designed a lot of building structures called houses. Um, anything that's three-dimensional intrigues me to design, uh, landscape all the time. So it's uh, it's all kind of tied together in my fabric. I'll send you a picture of my, my crazy little office here if you want. Yeah. Yeah, send me one. I'll put it on the show notes page. <laughs> we'll load this up with pictures. Well, you see, and you so you come from, uh, you know, you're not just a golf course architect, as we've talked about, uh, land planning, um, structural architecture, things things like that. There was a period in time when, after World War II, when many of the most prominent golf course architects came from that practice. They came from a field of of land planning and. I'm curious to get your thoughts. We uh, many people would say, "I'm sorry, go ahead." And engineering as well, no, definitely. and engineering, engineering, right? And you compare yeah, that and, to you know the pre-war architects who I don't think any of them. I shouldn't say any. I don't know, but they, many of them came from um, various backgrounds, but few were trained in you know architecture. They you know McKenzie was a doctor, Colt was a lawyer, right. um, but now you get to this place where architecture is a profession, and you're applying. A curriculum that you've learned in school or as a profession to your subject matter and many people would argue that this is kind of where in american design at least golf courses started to get really big and really spread out and perhaps lost a lot of the character that defines the pre-war courses um what do you you know you as a land planner like what's the role of land planning and uh, there's got to be a way that you can use it and still create courses as you have in the past of great character and strategy as well. You know, the uh, I'm so glad that the core course is coming back. I don't mean Bill Core. I'm talking about the you know where, where golf holes are right. adjacent to each other. I think try to answer your question after after the war. You know, or, you know, we were we had just won and we were big and everything was new and it was the modern movement. And, you know, we'd be tearing down old structures and building new skyscrapers and modern styles and stuff. And I think the, uh, uh, you know, very bold new stuff. And the, uh, I think golf architecture, you know, with the, you know, Robert Trent Jones, other people, that was very much in vogue at that time, knock it down, build something great, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, you know, we started getting away from that, you know, which, uh, and I, I don't, I don't really miss the, the Trent Jones stuff, which is, which is great. And I, but, uh, I'm, you know, then we started going back into the natural, rediscovering the natural from the early 1900s. Um, land planning, uh, I'm glad we're not, uh, I've done many, many plans with, you know, houses on both sides of routings and golf holes. You know, I, I, at a certain point, I try to get two holes adjacent, then have the houses outside them, you know, as opposed to just individual links, also just, you know, of, of golf holes surrounded by houses. I think we're getting away from that. I think people at one point, you know, wanted to have a, you know, it's so exciting to have a piece of grass in your backyard as a golf hole, you know, but then they don't realize that as well. A lot of people that, you know, have any privacy either, you know, you've got golfers flowing through your backyard. Um, I'm glad that's kind of moving away. I think we've gone through a hybrid now where, you know, you can have, you know, you know, housing on, on the periphery or insert itself partly into the, but, but generally have a, you know, a routing that's, more of a core course, which I think is, and I think there's a good balance there. You know, I don't think there's a, 
and there's nothing wrong with having houses on golf courses, although you don't want them too intrusive. But so it's a good blend. I mean, you think of Pebble Beach. I mean, Pebble Beach has probably got houses on half the golf balls, mm-hmm. um, and they're not. You know, they, you know, they don't. Uh, you know, the whole is lined with it on the upside part of the golf course all the way home and all the way out. I mean, not out, but um, so you, you know, and it works there. You know, it, it works at, you know, at, uh, you know, Pinehurst and other places. So, yeah, I, I think right. we're getting better than we were back in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. I mean, I think there's there's was no great real true silver lining to the recession of, of 2008 2009 2010 but i think one thing it did do was break golf of this terrible habit of kind of throwing up developments with golf courses strung through them on any type of landscape that you know the developer could buy it for cheap and i'd like to think that's not ever going to come back again but you know given money and incentive and and the lure of profit as is uh, I'm not. I'm not sure, and it kind of ties back to this question I asked earlier. What it, what you thought about? Are we in this whatever state we're in architecturally right now, from a design and aesthetic perspective? Are we, are we destined to stay here, or will there be another turn of the screw and we start to move into new things? And uh, I do worry that, given the opportunity, developers and and land planners will forget all the good stuff that's being built now and, and revert to what they, whatever they perceive as, as a moneymaker. Yeah. And that's moneymaker is the, is the key to that. You know, I, I think if we're going to you know grow the game and maybe we won't, I don't know. That's a nice thing to say, but I think it's got to be affordable and affordability is, is, is major. If, if, uh, you know, I think we'll always have the private and ultra private golf courses are always going to have people with money that, you know, that that's what they're looking for. But, the affordability is, you know, I stress that a lot. And are we going to find people, uh, developers or people who want to just own a golf course and build a golf course and, and try to, you know, make a work on green fees? Um, it's hard. I mean, it's, you know, the Altamont Orchard people, because they own the land to begin with, they, they, they really had very little, uh, they borrowed very little money on the whole thing, and uh, and they can do that. They're, make, they're doing well. They're supporting four families. Um, who, or brothers who are all working there. That's an anomaly. You can't, that really doesn't work. It's hard to get that business model anymore. So that being said, uh, I'm not sure where we're going. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I love this concept, um, and it's not a concept, but it, it it's, maybe it is a concept. I love this concept of everyman golf and the idea of, of seeing a way forward in golf design by building more affordable and more accessible golf courses. I, I talk about it on this podcast almost every every episode and, and, and so do so many others in, in golf right now, realizing that, that that's, the, that's key. We have to bring back golf to accessible places and affordable prices, but still give a, a good solid product. Uh, how big of an obstacle is, is money in this equation? Because it always comes back to money, and we all have great ideas, and we can all envision every old dilapidated golf course in in every city in every town being redeveloped into something really funky and and affordable. But how? I mean, where, how big of a role is money, and how big of an obstacle is that? You know, so much of it goes back to the uh, back. When development started post World War II, 
you know, you, you, you have your new you know, subdivision stuff. You, they might have a, a tennis complex. Everybody had to have a tennis complex and a pool complex. You know, then as, a, as we evolved, they got there, they also have to have golf. Um, so then, you know, the golf was funded through the sale of the real estate. That's what, you know, then, uh, you know, because it's hard right now. That, and that, that worked, that model in that time worked because of, because of the real estate. Um, it's hard to do it without some type of real estate sales. And I think going forward, I mean, because what happens then is you build a golf, you build a golf course using money from the real estate sales, and you can, you know, somebody else can take over the golf course, you have members who can own it, everything else. But you don't, you know, you, you spread the upfront development cost out for construction, you know, through, through sale of real estate. Um, I think that's probably most likely the way the model would go. Um, or the other way where you, you know, go find some of the best property in remote parts of, parts of the world that, and then basically your clientele or people can afford to get there, which is not every, every day it works for people. So I don't know. Those are two different models. I'm not sure. I guess really another way to, to look at, another way to look at this would be how much more expensive it is it to build really good, interesting dynamic architecture versus building something that's kind of plain? It all depends on the site again, you know, everything's site driven, you know, if it was, you're better, it's so much easier to do that on a flat piece of land that drains uh, than a, you know, a Windermere site that is rock and bad topsoil and, you know, it's just hard to work with the conditions. So that's, I'd go back to my flat, flat piece of land in Kansas that, that drains. And a decent water source. I mean, those are the those are the keys to affordability. Um, and I know it could be sand dunes, or whatever. We're great. I mean, the, I mean, Diamante Dunes has got some of the best conditions to to build a golf. It's was two links. I mean, it's like the links of of Europe. I mean, it's you've got drainage, you've got you know, you've got a decent soil. You just put water on it, it'll grow. Um, by the way, our the sand dunes we had tested for percolation here at Diamante Dunes and they perked at 56 inches an hour. You know, which is fast. Can ha- handle a lot of water. Yeah, I mean, you need about 18 inches on a, on a USGA green an hour. You know, so yeah. we're, you know, almost four times that amount. But anyway, that's just a side fact. I like to think about golf courses and going back to art for, for as we kind of uh, wrap up our conversation, going back to art and try to find parallels between golf course architecture and the art world, whether or, or the film or, you know, anything, any kind of parallel artistic in, endeavor. And it's pretty, it's kind of hard to do. Golf seems to operate because it's, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of acres and multiple millions of dollars. You, you, an artist can't just, you know, go into his studio and whip up a golf course and, and experiment with it. But I tried to draw parallels and art, art, golf architecture seems to kind of def, defy easy characterizations. But it, when I, I looked at some of your father's paintings and one of the things that struck me is it looked like there was some, his landscapes at least, you know, it looked like there was some Edward Hopper influence in there. And also with, uh, um, and I'm no art historian, don't get me wrong, but almost with like sort of like uh, an intensity of color or a, or a Cezanne element that kind of leaps off the page when Cezanne would do landscapes. And where I'm going with this is, 
I think that he must have obviously being an art historian and being so knowledgeable had many, many influences that you can do. He does abstract work. He did abstract expressions of work. And, and mm-hmm. as you said, fine arts and stained glass. So he wasn't doing just one thing, but he was obviously, uh, I think, uh, sensitive to art that existed before him, but he was also kind of internalizing it and, and making it his own and, and playing around with it and experimenting and finding his own voice through these other inspirations. And I'm, I'm wondering if, I ask myself, am I, do I see this enough in golf course architecture? I see right now a lot of, like right now there's, there's sort of like this passion for template holes and this reemergence of Rainer that, you know, Rainer didn't, nobody knew who Rainer was in 1985. Right. Now everybody right. knows who he is. Exactly. And golf course designers who had, have long careers and were, were never building anything that looked like Seth Rainer are now doing like, certain elements of of that style of golf but i'm not sure they're putting a new twist on it and i don't know that i'm seeing like anybody take a traditional form or a traditional inspiration and and do and really try to take it somewhere and do something unique to it and and the last thing i'll say before i turn it over to you is i i think that the most talented designers who are capable of that like like tom doak and bill Coor and gil hans sometimes they get sites that are so good and and just like you at diamante like you you have to obey the site you can't be experimental you can't push your own vision on it because you know you have to just you work with the land and, and that's admirable and as it should be but in other cases I, i'm just not sure i'm seeing like a, a real level of of individual expression in architecture is that important yeah if you're gonna you know try to do something that's that's you know better than you know, average. Um, the, thank you very much, though, for doing some research with my dad. That that, that was uh, very nice of you to, to take the time and effort there. He was a, a unique individual, and even his artwork was very unique as well. But yeah. thank you for doing that. That's touching. The um, where was I going? Uh, yeah, with is uh, yeah, like taking taking some an inspiration and internalizing it and and putting it back out there as something that is is. An, uh, is your own piece of work, your own idea, instead of just riffing on something, you know, instead of just copying, basically? You know, um, well, that's what I like to do. I mean, that's, that's, that's me. It's, yeah, you know, and, and I put you in this category, I, 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 somebody I, who does that, along with, like, Mike Strands, to go back to that connection. I mean, there's a lot of individuality and a lot of artistic, you know, high, high, con, high concept in the work that I've seen from you. Well, I, I haven't, I've drawn three times uh, some 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 golf courses and trying to get them built where I call them Shangri-Las. Um, you know, it's a lot like Shadow Creek or, you know, uh, yeah, Shadow Creek, right, at uh, Balios. Yeah, in um, Las Vegas, yeah. You know, uh, where, where you come in and you create a whole environment that's in, you know, to me it's like the, the movie Shangri-La where you, you kind of climb way through the Himalayas and you open the door or go through the waterfall and you're in a, you're in a whole other world. That's what I would absolutely love to do. I'm just trying to find the right, the right person to, you know, spring that on. But, uh, but no, to me, that's the ultimate designer. I mean, I would love that. So I'm, and anything underneath that, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, I'm finding myself rambling right now. I don't really have a, a great answer. Uh, that's yeah, it's not an answer. answer. I mean, it's there's no answer to it. It's just uh, you know, I, I I recognize that we're in such a strong place architecturally right now, and the the guys who are working for the A listers right now are so talented. and They have such great vision. Uh, I, I don't know if they're going to 
you know, when they're going to get their chance to show their stuff. But when they do, I hope, I hope they, they are, they are pushing into new territory. I mean, because you're, you're an artist, if you're a designer and you know, you want to express yourself. That's why you, I think would think that's why you're in this profession is to try to create mm-hmm. something that hadn't been created before. That's why we're out here. Yeah. You know, to build something new every day, that's all I, I really want. And I, I don't care what it is, but I go out almost every day and I build something new. It's like a, you know, it's whether it could be whatever, you know, I don't know, a, a landscape or whatever. I've got right now a construction crew that we go out and build something new every day. We don't maintain anything. Uh, we just build new stuff throughout the resort, whether it's landscape or right now we're building the gaping walls. You know, we're doing all sorts of different stuff. And that, to me, that's what gets me excited about getting up every every morning and going to bed at night. It's just, uh, if it's a golf course, I'm, I'm really happy if it's a, it could be anything though. Yeah, that's nice. That's good. So I'll ask you a couple questions before we we uh, end this. You, you mentioned everyman golf and, and uh, a style of golf that, that's of the community. What, if you had to go to one place in the world and play a golf course that best represents that, would it be Orchard Creek or would it be someplace else? In the U.S., it'd probably be Orchard Creek. In, 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 in Europe, it'd probably be North Barrack or La Hinch. Yeah. I like, you know, I like both of those a lot. I love, yeah. You I've know? not been to North Barrack, but La Hinch is... Oh, you gotta my... go. No, it's probably one of the quirkiest ones. A lot of, a couple template holes came out of North Barrack. You know, yeah. Redan and the Redan. Uh, yeah. are both, uh, are, well, Baritz, but... There's well, there's that's the that that's the Mac Daddy of of Biritz is really yeah that really is I mean it's it's, it's Biritz on who knows uh, but yeah. no you need to go there and if you ever want to come down here please do I'll make, uh, I'd love to have you down here with Diamante or thank or you Orchard it's Creek on my list um, yeah okay you mentioned that you had you started your kind of golf career not exactly at Pebble Beach but but it, it got you there and I, I this is going to seem like probably a pretty easy question but i'm going to ask it anyway uh and, and maybe you go in a different direction or, or surprise me with with a detail pebble beach or spyglass hill pebble beach although although spyglass had just opened i think in 1968 i was there like a couple years earlier it was still it was still very new we consider very new and and uh, you know cutting edge and uh I love the first, you know, everybody loves the first five holes at, at, at Spyglass. I mean, you tee off and you're rambling down at Dunescape, et cetera. When I was there, they hadn't, didn't have many houses built. So it was a lot like uh, Diamante Dunes at that point. You know, and then but I think I liked it less as you wanted back up through the, through the forest. Pebble is, Pebble is Pebble. I mean, it is that that good, although I changed the routing, but I'm not going to tell you that right now because it's going to take too long. Uh, <laughs> I've had debates about that. Uh, no, and Pebble is just is unique on its own. But I think I'd take Pebble more. Yeah. Mainly because I can hear the, the otters barking in the bay and that kind of stuff. It brings back mm-hmm. a lot of... We used to play Pebble Beach being a greenskeeper at, at the full moon. You know, and our only rule was if you lost the ball, that was a stroke, you know, and it, it was... You want to talk about a place that's spectacular and a full moon is Pebble. I mean, um, playing golf course. Uh, some of those, sh- some of those shots there under a full moon must be spectacular. Like the oh. second shot on eight, <laughs> you know, hitting over the cove. Oh, yeah. and, yeah. oh my god! Oh, it's no, it's amazing. No, it really, it's you know, it's yes, it's what you can try to imagine. It's mystical. 
Um, it's so hard to imagine doing that now based on what Pebble Beach has become. Yeah, they wouldn't let you out there. You couldn't no. get through security. Uh, no. no. I had a very fortunate to have a hit Pebble Beach at just the right time. Well, this is the last question, and I ask this uh, pretty much of everybody. What is your favorite modern golf course that you did not have a hand in building? Oh, boy. Um, that's not going to be real easy. Um, you know, it popped up real fast was the uh, Monterey Peninsula, you know, the Strands uh, mm-hmm. renovation that the right. Forest did. Yeah. Um, that was high. You know, I like... You know, I, I admire the you know the core Crenshaw, Tom Bilk, you know, Bill Hahn stuff. I, mean, I think that's really good. I haven't played enough of them in the last seven or eight years, you know. But what I see in the press looks great. You know, I like that style in general. So there's not I don't, you know one course sticks out, but more of that that style of play, you know, the natural uh, elements and you know, if anything, I think uh, if I had to be critical, uh, I like I like ease of maintenance to the extent that. You know, you know, artificially maintain frilly edges all the time can get old. I think things need to be a little simpler. It doesn't mean they can't be wild and rugged looking, but in a way that I'd rather have wild and rugged bunkering than the lacy, you know, almost too manicured. Uh, it's very natural. It's ultra natural looking, and you can't maintain that unless you're just in a, a wild place like Diamante where, you know, it's just, you know, it's about to be blown away if it's not irrigated. So it's or sand hills or something like that. It's always evolving as far as maintenance techniques and to kind of keep it in place. Uh, other stuff, I like it a little less frilly. I would think. Just as a follow up, when you when you said you traveled a little bit more than you have because you you've been down in Diamante now, kind of like basically like living there for the number of years now. But before when you were out and traveling around, could, when you visited a Tom Doak or a Bill Cor course, were, were there things that you could tell that they were doing architecturally that were important, different in important ways? You know, because they they both had got great sites most of the time, and they were building as a reaction to the site. So, you know, there are common elements between their styles of design, but were you noticing anything from a design or aesthetic perspective that was different? Um, yes. You know, all, all, all the obvious things, at least to me, yeah, would, more than anything, it make me want to have the same site and do, and do something. You know, I always look at something, I, what I like, it's a lot of things I like about Corn Crenshaw or, or others, and a lot of things I don't like that I would do differently. So as a designer, that's just natural. You're always looking and looking at how would I have done this? What do I like about this? How would I have done it different? And so, uh, yeah, that's what they excite me to the extent that they get me thinking like that. Um, I wish I'm jealous. I wish I had more sites mm-hmm. right now to be off doing that. I'm getting older and I want, I want to build some more, uh, what I consider um, some of the, the best that I can do anyway, sure. wherever that ends up. But there's, they're getting some nice sites. Yeah, they sure are, and they continue to. They're both well, they're yeah, both uh, yeah. lined up to build a couple more courses down in New Zealand at Taraidi. So the uh, okay, the rich get richer. Well, someday you'll get there, or, or have been there. It's good. It's good for those who can get there for sure. It's good for the. It's good for the. You know, it's good for the for the people who have the means to travel and and experience these places. Mm-hmm. Most people don't. Um, so that's why we need more everyman golf the orchard creeks of the world. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, I'm being here at, a, you know, our top 100 golf course here, so we get a lot of that crowd coming through, and I meet, meet a lot of 
people and they're you know very interesting people that can afford to travel you know for a living and there are some fascinating people there um but uh then again it's a whole different side of the it's not working man's all courses so anyway i'm sure you you're not complaining i know <laughs> no Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Eric, it's been my pleasure, and I only I would look forward to meeting you someday. I've enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed you know our banter, and, uh, and thanks for the opportunity. All right, that was Paul Cowley, someone I've admired for a long time. Hopefully, sooner rather than later, we'll see Paul back in the design game with an opportunity to construct new golf courses. We've seen the work that he can do with the Love Group, and the new putting course at Diamante is fantastic. If you haven't seen photos of that on the show notes page, go ahead and check that out at feedtheball.com, the Paul Kelly episode. There's some photographs there. You see some really wild, dramatic, fun green contours on the putting green. I can't help but think of the opportunity that we all missed out on for something truly unique and original when the Paul Kelly Forrest Fesler design group didn't quite get off the ground. They actually had uh, several projects um, in the works. They hadn't broken ground, but but they had several projects that they were about to get started on when the financial recession hit, and it it just never got going, and that's too bad. Could you imagine the combination of the the minds of these two guys and what those golf courses would have looked like? I have to think they would have been something not quite ordinary. There'd be some real ingenuity and, and creative exploration flowing on those designs. Alas, we'll never know what that would have looked like, but again, hopefully we get Paul Cowley back in the design game on some new golf course projects fairly soon. If you've not subscribed to the podcast, please do so at iTunes or your favorite podcast service provider. While you're there, please leave a rating and a review. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at FeedTheBall. I want to thank Paul Cowley again for joining me on this episode. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music as usual. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Mm-hmm.